This is where karaoke was born physically on this spot with this guy on this machine. And we're holding the mic, passing it back and forth together, uh, singing very badly, uh, a very old Japanese pop song. And uh, those moments were, they're really precious to me. Hello and welcome to Deep Dive from the Japan Times. I'm Oscar Boyd. My guest today is Matt Alt, who you just heard speaking about his experience having tea with one of the inventors of the karaoke machine. Matt's coming on the podcast to talk about his new book. It's called Pure Invention, How Japan's Pop Culture Conquered the World. Matt sent me a copy to read before we recorded together. And I've got to say, it's a really, really fun book and one I highly recommend to anyone interested in learning more about Japan's pop culture. Each chapter tells the story of one of Japan's superstar inventions from the karaoke machine, which we just had them discussing, to the Game Boy, to Hello Kitty and Nichan, which Matt dubs the antisocial network and what became the precursor to Western copycats like 4chan and 8chan. So today we're going to be talking with Matt about Pure Invention, his book, and be asking, has Japan's pop culture really conquered the world? Matt, thank you for joining us again, and congratulations on finally publishing your book. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure. So I think quite a lot of people might be surprised by the idea that Japan's pop culture has conquered the world. I think a lot of people, and I'm including myself in this, in this if you ask them what they thought the dominant global pop culture was, they'd probably immediately jump to the US or perhaps say something along the lines of pop culture nowadays being an amalgamation of different influences from around the world. I'm thinking particularly of K-pop now as something that's just made the headlines. Sure. So how did the book come together around this idea of Japan's pop culture having conquered the world? Well, I've been working in the Japanese entertainment production field for many years. Uh, I've been a translator. I run a, a co-operate, co-founded and operate a company called Alt Japan that specializes in video game localization. And mm-hmm. we also translate manga. We've translated movies. We work with toy companies to help them get the English language packaging and things for their uh, products. So we've been kind of at the front lines of this pop cultural production machine, if you want to call it, for many years. And we started doing this at the turn of the millennium around 2000. And, you know, now it's been 20 years. And over those decades, I started to notice just a a shift in the way consumers approach the products. Like back in the beginning, in the late 90s, it it was not uncommon for years to elapse between a Japanese product being released in Japan and its English version or, or European language version being released abroad. Um, There really wasn't much fanfare. It was often a kind of underground sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But now the fans are demanding stuff, not only, you know, right up to the second, which makes sense because the internet has, you know, makes us want everything on demand. But there's also this increasing cry for wanting the products to be more Japanese. And at first I thought this was like, wow, what a bunch of otaku, what a bunch of Japan geeks. (laughs) But then I realized that's not it at all, actually. Our, Our tastes have really Japanized over the decades because we have consumed so many things from Japan in the same way that Japanese people are using them because they fit into our lives. And not only that, our entire Western society has come to resemble Japan's in a, in many ways. We're aging rapidly. We experienced our own popping of an economic bubble, like Japan's economic bubble popped in 1990. Ours popped in uh, uh, 2008 with the Lehman shock, with the Great Recession that set in. So that kind of ennui that a lot of young people are feeling and, and ambivalence toward the future 
is really makes them resemble the otaku and the schoolgirls of the 1990s who pioneered so many different technologies on the streets of Japan. And that's why we consume these things today, because we are turning Japanese, not because these products were intended to colonize us or brainwash anyone. It was a totally grassroots sort of thing that often came to a surprise to their products on creators. I'm going to forget the name of the uh, band who sung it, but... It's the vapors. I've just Googled it subtly in the background. Oh, yes. Attorney <laughs> so, so yeah, Japanese vapors were released right. in 1980. They're totally right. <laughs> Who knew the vapors were right? You know? Um, I, know there's, I think it's important to say there's a lot of theories as to what that song actually means, <laughs> but let's just, let's just take it on its, uh, Most on its literal on its, level. <laughs> exactly. But uh, yes. So that was the kind of unifying theory behind the book. But the, the most important thing to me was that. You know, I hadn't, most of my projects, my personal projects emerge from a place of dissatisfaction because I can't find something that I wish existed. And then I want to go out and make it myself. And there's a lot of deep dives out there on Japanese fashion or anime, music, you name it, uh, architecture. There are great, great, great books out there on many of these subjects, Mm -hmm. but I was, I still wasn't unaware of the existence of any book that really tries to tie everything together and I believe this is the first mainstream, certainly, uh, publisher tackling the question of why Japan has such outsized cultural gravity. And you can't approach that from any one angle. It's a multifaceted sort of thing. So that was the idea and the great stress <laughs> because it was extremely stressful tying all of these <laughs> uh, threads together and writing the book. Yeah, and it does tie together a lot of different facets of Japan. Uh, I suppose to continue the metaphor, the string you're using or maybe the lens you're using is that of culture and as you've said there's been plenty of books written about japan in english many looking at its political and economic history yes but why do you think it's so important to tell japan's history through the lens of culture well those those books are great let me just say that i think there's a place for them and i think they're wonderful but speaking personally and i think speaking for most people the way that we interact with japan on a daily and and you know on a daily level is not through its politics or through its history. It's through its products. Mm -hmm. You know, we interact with Japan through the products that it produces and that we purchase and that we incorporate into our lives. So it, to me, it, it, it felt like a really natural lens to try to focus this question of why, you know, Japan has this pull on the, the kind of hearts and minds of the world, especially considering that that pull is generated by the things people purchase and consume from it. I don't think you can tell that story simply through anime, for instance. And there's great books out there written on the the uh, not only on anime as a as a genre or a medium, but also specific animators. And it's available in English. But I think you'd be hard pressed to find an anime fan who's only interacting with Japan through anime. They probably have a Walkman or did if they're of a certain age. <laughs> you know, they're probably using emoji when they're texting on their phones. They've probably used 4chan. They've probably you know all of these. They've probably read manga. You know, um, so it's it's a it's a multifaceted uh, sort of cultural construct, and I wanted to really sort of tease that out and explore each one of those facets individually and how they link together. Pure Invention, your book, offers a really sweeping history, and in its pages, you cover everything from. 
toy replicas of Jeeps made in the rubble of World War II through to the development of TV's first anime, the appearance of Hello Kitty, Steve Jobs' fascination with Sony and the Walkman, yes. the rise of Otaku, and the development of the infamous Nichan. Yes. What unites all of these things for you? Well, certainly, you know, the most obvious thing about them is that these were all incredibly popular products. And I selected the things that are used in the book as examples using a very specific criteria. They had to be inessential. They had to be things that we bought because we wanted to, not because we had to. Mm -hmm. You know, they had to be uh, inescapable, which means they had to be really popular to the point they became ubiquitous. And they had to be influential in the form that they either changed our minds about Japan or changed the way that we approached our own lives, and most often both. So I use that criteria of the three ins to choose which products I felt most paved the way to get to now. And that's something really critical. This book isn't actually a collection of anecdotes about popular products. It's actually a sort of roadmap for the Japanization of global tastes and what the profound implications of that are on our daily lives even today. These three ins that you just described, uh, inessential, inescapable, and influential, you bring them together under this concept, which you call the fantasy delivery device. Could you go into that idea a little bit more and tell us exactly what a fantasy delivery device is? Well, it's just what the name uh, implies. It is a uh, product or an object that serves up fantasies or changes the way that we entertain ourselves and changes the way that we dream. And by changing the way that we dream, it actually changes the way that we approach reality. And that has a lot of implications and effects for the way society uh, developed after these products appeared. You know, you can, just to take one example from the book, there's a very, very specific before and after with the Walkman. Take a cassette out of its case. And most people just see an empty box. But Sony saw something quite different. One minute, music was a shared experience. The next minute, it was an intensely private one. Nobody even knew what you were listening to. And that had really uh, a, a huge effect on the way we lived our lives in cities in particular, how we could tune other people out suddenly, how we could kind of hit a fast forward button, both literally and figuratively, uh, to kind of skip through boredom in our lives. And that was really the predecessor for the kind of plugged in smartphone, you know, constantly gazing down and checking for messages, uh, lifestyles that we live today. Yeah. And I guess the Walkman is the perfect example of those three ins you use. It's inessential in that no one has to listen to music on the go, but people definitely want to. Inescapable in yes. that the Walkman became so ubiquitous around Tokyo and the rest of the world and influential to the point where that chapter in particular is framed and begins by exploring Steve Jobs' relationship to the Walkman. Yes, he actually uh, famously, and this was described by his uh, the, CEO, the then Apple CEO, uh, uh, John Scully, that when they received Walkmans as presents from Akio Morita, Steve Jobs didn't even bother listening to his. He disassembled <laughs> it when he got home and, and studied it very closely. And this was a guy who loved music. Steve Jobs was a huge music fan. And so you would have, you'd think he'd be getting hooked on it just like anybody else, but he knew just how 
of a, much of a game changer this was. It made technology cool, mm. which is why you have scenes of Paul Simon wearing his on stage at the Grammys or uh, uh, Andy Warhol literally just wearing the headphones around in New York City because being seen with them marked you as some kind of forward thinking technological go getter. And it's it's tough to imagine from our standpoint now, 40 years later, but up until that point, technology wasn't cool. It, it wasn't. <laughs> It wasn't fashionable. Like, you know, you wanted a transistor radio maybe so you could listen to the Beatles on it, but like it wasn't a status symbol. Uh, and with the Walkman, suddenly the high tech became a status symbol. And the, you know, it, it's very easy to see how deeply that influenced jobs and later Apple computer in particular. I do like in that chapter that you drop all these bits of trivia around how Sony advertised the Walkman and helped to, to achieve its superstar status paying young fashionable people in Ginza to walk around giving other people a taste or a hit of their new headphones yes. and their new Walkman. The first taste is free. It's always free, <laughs> exactly. right? And you also do something similar when you're talking about the history of the karaoke machine and where you talk about developers paying attractive women to sing at the mic in nascent karaoke bars until the machine and the practice of singing automated karaoke caught on. Yeah, the, the marketing of these objects in their home country of Japan is something that I really wanted to uh, look into because there's surprisingly little written about it in, in the English press. You know, karaoke is the definition of ubiquitous. We actually use that word in, in our you know daily speech these days. And but the, 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 the writing that's on it in the English language that I was researching when I was writing the book is inevitably skewed toward how Westerners sing on it mm -hmm. and very little... Uh, attention is paid to who made it in the first place in Japan, and more importantly, why? Why? Why did Japanese people invent this thing, and not somebody in New York City or Peoria, Illinois, or you know, London, England? Why did Why did somebody in Japan invent it, and not just invent it? Five different people independently invented it over the course of the '60s and early '70s. So there's <laughs> definitely something in the air in Japan, um, and I link that very closely to salaryman culture, which involves a lot of uh, late night carousing and drunken singing and entertaining of clients, which is something that we didn't really have in America at the time. Uh, there wasn't a need for a karaoke machine, but once it existed, we figured out how to incorporate it into our lives pretty quickly. And you did actually manage to track down and have tea with one of those inventors of the karaoke machine, a man yes. named Shigechi Negishi. Yes, Mr. Negishi. Of the Box, yes. one of the first karaoke machines. He's turned into a kind of mascot character for the book. A lot of people who read it really uh, remember him, <laughs> and which is great because, you know, he hasn't been forgotten by his industry, but I certainly don't think the average Japanese person even would know his name if you said it. Um, but it's, um, you know, finding those people and hearing their stories. I, I'm privileged to, to be able to speak Japanese. That I studied it in, in high school and college and, and worked as a translator for many years. And so one of my big aims for this book was to kind of lend my eyes and ears and linguistic abilities to the readership. Um, you know, I didn't, I wasn't really interested in, you know, Matt Alt's personal exploration of why I think the Walkman's cool because that's <laughs> subjective. What I was interested in is, well, this is something I can do that a lot of people can't. I can, you know, I have, I'm American, but yet I can speak the language and go seek these people out and talk to them. And, you know, it's, it's, I was privileged to get so many responses when I, you know, reached out to people and, and was honored to be let into their homes and their workplaces. 
and in the case of Nigishi, you actually managed to sample or try out the very first Sparkle yes, box that, he's, yes. that he still has. <laughs> we sang together. <laughs> that was a moment. I mean, that was literally the the place where the, the first karaoke song was ever sung. It was his living room, and that's where we were. And of course, the house has been rebuilt since uh, you know 1967 when he was there, but it's sitting on the same plot of land. And it really felt like I had reached some kind of holy grail or some kind of you know, uh, holy land. I mean, this is where karaoke was born physically <laughs> on this spot with this guy on this machine. And we're holding the mic, passing it back and forth together, uh, singing very badly or attempting to, uh, a very old Japanese pop song. And, uh, those moments were, they're really precious to me. I, I, I really enjoyed experiencing them and I hope that comes across in, uh, in what I wrote about. Yeah, it's quite a far cry from the uh, karaoke can and strong zeros that you might have on a regular yes. night out. <laughs> exactly. Which of the products that you write about in your book did you enjoy researching the most and perhaps which were you most surprised by the history of? That's a good question, actually. I mean, when you're in the thick of it, there's not much room for appreciating or enjoying or luxuriating <laughs> in it. It's you're desperately trying to get coherent sentences down and make your deadlines and whatnot. But, you know, I was I was an am uh, an avid collector of Japanese antique toys. And I hadn't realized that the Japanese toy industry was a a major export industry as far back as the turn of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. Uh, the early 1900s, actually, Japanese toy makers uh, were exporting so much product that they that American industry uh, insiders were calling for tariffs on them. So, you know, telling that story of how uh, Matsuzo Kosuge literally turned the trash from American military bases into toys, into treasure that not only he could use to cheer up the kids of Japan, but also form the foundation of an entire rebuilding an economy was really eye-opening to me. I, I didn't, you know, I love toys, so I'm always predisposed to think they're cool, but realize, but seeing how just a humble toy could play such a pivotal role in, in geopolitics was incredibly moving for me to be able to discover, especially because I don't think that story has ever been told in English before. And this is the story in the very first chapter of Matsuzo Kosuge, who created toy replicas of American Jeeps, um, which became the first luxury good to actually be sold in department store in Japan post-World War II. And the first cleared for export by the by GHQ, by the authorities. It was uh, toys and silks. So, I mean, in a very weir- real way, toys, tin toys and, and other playthings rebuilt the Japanese economy in uh, those immediate post-war years. But I was also very um, interested to discover just what a profound impact Japanese schoolgirls and young women had on global tastes in the 1990s. Like they became trailblazers and tech trendsetters without anybody really realizing it. And through their desire to stay connected to one another, the, the trends that they launched and the products that they refashioned and repurposed for themselves, often in ways that their makers weren't expecting. Like for instance, how they turned pocket pagers into texting devices or uh, selfie sticker machines intended for salary men to put a photograph on their business cards. They turned these into literal Facebooks of their friends that they would show around. Hmm. They basically invented social media on the streets of Tokyo. And when I was 
talking about this with a professor uh, by the name of Mimi Ito who specializes in this. It was just like a light bulb going off over my head. And I was like, wow, like, you know, we're all kind of Japanese schoolgirls now. <laughs> like you know, all of us, like there's a, there is literally a part of every like internet connected human being who is like <laughs> a partly Japanese schoolgirl now. And, and I, that to me is, is a really, really cool thing. Uh, I love grassroots movements like that. It wasn't orchestrated by any cool Japan committee or anything like that. Um, it was just purely, uh, driven by young women, you know, taking their, you know, seeing new technology and, and adopting it in, into new lifestyles. I'll have to go searching for my inner schoolgirl after this episode's done. <laughs> exactly. Bust out your Tamagotchi, you know. <laughs> I actually did a Tamagotchi for the first time in years when I was writing that chapter <laughs> because Tamagotchis are another Japanese schoolgirl uh, a pastime that took off around the globe. The book is kind of anchored by two major world events, one being World War II and the other being the crashing of Japan's economic bubble in the 1990s. Things you talk about like the car, the karaoke machine and the Walkman, they all came in the decades following World War II. But how did the bursting of Japan's economic bubble affect the country's cultural output? Well, in 1980s, during what's known as Japan's bubble era, uh, Japan was an ascendant economic force. It was the world's second largest economy, which is pretty unthinkable for a country the size of Japan that had been literally leveled in bombings just 40 years prior to that. Mm -hmm. And this led to quite a bit of hand wringing and teeth gnashing and Japan bashing, as it came to be called, among Western nations who felt that Japan wasn't playing fair and that Japanese... Uh, styles of doing business would come to become the standard around the world that that we would Japanize in a terrifying way that we would all become salarymen and have our individuality sucked out of us. Of course, never you know stopping to consider that if Japan is really this country full of you know lockstep you know worker drone bees, why are they creating all these crazy products like the Walkman <laughs> and like Pac-Man and Dig Dug and and thing in the Nintendo? Uh, there was always a cognitive dissonance as for me as a kid, even back then, everything crashed in 1990, uh, the stock market crashed, the real estate market crashed and Japan entered, uh, first one decade and then later two, uh, decades of recession that are now known as the lost decades. And those were a very dark period for Japan. Young people were, uh, no longer privileged to, have lifetime employment. A lot of the safety nets that had existed beforehand uh, in in society kind of evaporated because there was no money for them. Companies restructured, fired people. You know, suicide rates spiked. People were so lost that they started turning toward you know cults and strange religions. The Aum Shinrikyo uh, attack on the subway system mm -hmm. in in 1995 was it was a huge shock to not only the world but of course to, to Japanese people. Like, how on earth could this happen in our country? And then the government bungled the response to the Kobe, uh, Awajishima, uh, uh, earthquake just so terrifically that it, that a gang, a, a gang of Yakuza had to take over distributing supplies to people. Like what happened to our great country, you know, and you see echoes of this in, in the West and in America now where, you know, a, a man who wanted to make America great again. So he said, uh, is appealing to people who felt like America had totally fallen apart. So the, 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 as our societies came to resemble one another more, these Japanese tastes started to kind of dictate the things that we 
purchased in the in our behaviors. You know, 4chan is a great example of that. I mean, it's it's based on Japanese software. Uh, it was a it was a website intended for anime freaks, and then it basically radicalized a certain subset of its users into all sorts of extreme behavior. And that happened in Japan five to ten years before 4chan happened. We see history repeating in the West. History that happened in Japan and either people brushed it off as being something wacky Japanese, oh, that could never happen anywhere else, or didn't notice it at all. Um, so that that to me was uh, something that I really wanted to convey, that Japan isn't a strange place. Japan was kind of a, a harbinger for all of this weirdness in our late capitalist post-manufacturing lives. So in that sense, do you think that Japan's pop culture will continue to conquer the world or is it even conquering the world now? Because although, I mean, it is a significant cultural force, it's dropping out of the conversation in many ways. No. You know, I'm recording this podcast with a MacBook and reading my notes off an iPhone. Yes. These are both huge cultural devices that have both come from America. Uh, in entertainment, Japan has J-pop, but Korea's K-pop seems a much more influential presence globally. And it was a Korean film, not a Japanese one, that won the Academy Award for Best Screenplay last year. China's yet to make its full cultural presence felt, um, and that could be down to its own history. Yes. But there are a lot of challenges to the notion of Japan as a cultural conqueror and its ability to export its culture. Oh, certainly, certainly. And and like I actually don't believe in exporting of culture as something that you can consciously do. I don't believe in the Cool Japan program. Cool Japan! I never use that phrase once in the book because I think that whole thing is a government boondoggle. But the book <laughs> is not intended to declare that Japanese pop culture is eternally wonderful it is a it, it it tells a period of time from world war ii up until about right now it, it ends in march when we all started locking down it explains how we got here it doesn't say that necessarily that's going to be the way things go in the future and i don't necessarily think the way that's the way things are going to go in the future i think the the especially the the last half of the 20th century was very much made in japan i don't think we're going to see made in Japan being such a powerful force going forward. But I think that we have absorbed so many things from the Japanese products that we consumed that what you're going to see is a lot of made everywhere else with values made in Japan. And look at what you what you just said a few minutes ago. You're working on a MacBook with, with, a, uh, with an iPhone. These are things that were deeply influenced by Steve Jobs's interaction with Akio Morita and Sony products. Or another example that I bring up in the book, Pokemon Go. Uh, it's this app that's been downloaded and installed on literally more than a billion cell phones around the world. It's made in Silicon Valley. It's made in Silicon Valley. It's Silicon Valley tech of, uh, of uh, uh, what's it called? AR. Um, augmented reality. Augmented reality. Thank you. But what, how does it express itself? Through Japanese characters. So I think we're going to see a lot more of that kind of thing, incorporating these kind of Japanese craftsmanship and Japanese values, so to speak. And I don't necessarily mean cultural values, but I mean consumer values into the products that people make. The things that we used to accuse Japanese people of being weird about, look at these otaku, they sit around their houses playing video games and watching anime all day. You know, they never go out, they don't date, ha 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 ha. 
Well, now if you look at the average American who's under 40 is living with their parents, they're probably streaming Netflix nonstop and they're playing video games all the time. Mm-hmm. Like, we, you know, we are them and they are us. So one of the things that I really wanted to get across is that, you know, there isn't really a big line between Japan and America or Japan and the West anymore. It's swirled and fused and we're all part of this uh, kind of late stage capitalist weirdness that we're trying to navigate through. And Japanese just got there a little bit earlier with their crash. And that's why their tools, their products seem so prescient to us as consumers. On that note, Matt Alt, thank you very much. (laughs) Thank you. That was Matt Alt, super interesting guy. And his book, Pure Invention, How Japan's Pop Culture Conquered the World, is out now. You've been listening to Deep Dive with me, Oscar Boyd. If you're enjoying the show, please do give us a rating or a review. We'll be back next week with another episode. But until then, as always, Podskare Summer.